this week on a lively experiment. Joe Biden fulfills a three-decade-plus quest to become president. And Governor Raimondo is facing calls to start taking questions publicly or step aside. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen-White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on this week's panel, Boston Globe reporter Ed Fitzpatrick, Keith Stokes, vice president of the 1696 Heritage Group, and Sun Chronicle columnist Donna Perry. Welcome, everyone. We appreciate you spending part of your weekend with us. Joe Biden became the nation's 46th president this week. We'll have more on that later. But first, should she stay or should she go? Governor Mundo said she is not going to leave her position until she's confirmed as Biden's Commerce Secretary. But she refuses to answer questions from reporters. She hasn't had uh, a press conference since begin uh, before Christmas. And that has calls for her saying she should step aside or step to the podium and answer our questions. Uh, Ed, let me begin with you. It is timely because you are a member of the New England uh, First Amendment Coalition. Uh, your group sent a letter to her. Just lay out the issue about what the concerns are for the reporters, but also for the public. Yeah, it came up last week when uh, they held the news conference, the regular news conference, to update everybody on the coronavirus situation here in Rhode Island. And she didn't take any questions, just left the stage. So. Yeah, the New England First Amendment Coalition and other uh, press, the Rhode Island Press Association and other groups have, have sent letters calling for her to answer questions. Um, you know, it, it, it's just not a one-time event. Apparently, she is not going to take questions in, until she's confirmed. So the NEFAC letter uh, didn't call for her resignation or anything like that. It, what it is asking her to do is to answer questions. And it says that she is, you know, she has been the chief executive making the key decisions about uh, what that affect businesses and schools uh, throughout the pandemic. She's been the leader and she's still in that position. So, you know, if she doesn't want to answer questions about fisheries or the Census Bureau or whatever might come up in her nomination process, that's one thing. But she is the chief executive of Rhode Island still. So she should answer questions in, in, that, in, in that capacity. And Donna, it's not just uh, Gina Raimondo up your way, Marty Walsh, who is usually very accessible to the press. He's in the same situation, not answering. So people are thinking maybe it's a Biden administration thing. I understand it's a touchy situation now, but these are chief executives. They have handled the reporters for years. What, what is the problem with answering a few more questions? Yeah, and I agree with Ed fully, and I commend the um, the you know the organization for for taking the step you did, Ed. And I I would say that Romando especially is almost undertaking a little bit of self sabotage, <laughs> the kind of thing you actually don't want to create controversy when you are on the eve of a nomination process for a huge cabinet secretary position. You know, she's like creating. Now, a controversy by sort of reversing course of what we saw for really now 10 months or more um, was very accessible. I, I've given her a lot of compliments. I thought she was always very hands-on. So I think it's odd. Um, there's other little now controversies around the COVID vaccination. I'm sure you're going to get to, you know, bubbling up, which are troubling. So I think she's almost creating 
um, a spectacle of being suddenly not maybe transparent with the press, maybe not there's something they don't want to, you know, hide or it, it, it just all looks bad at the moment when you wouldn't want that to begin to bleed out to the national media and she's going to sit before, you know, the, the Senate and have to be confirmed. So I, I think it's, it's puzzling and it's, it's a little troubling she's going this route. Keith? Uh, I mean, I agree with Ed and Donna. I mean, the transparency is, is tantamount, uh, separate and apart of what the federal uh, review and uh, process would be. Uh, but, I, but I personally believe it, it's a great honor to have uh, Ramundo uh, serve as Secretary of Commerce. Um, it's a great honor for her. It's a great honor for the state of Rhode Island and New England, quite candidly. I mean, I've had the opportunity to work with Commerce over the years on many economic development and capital projects that have been brought to Rhode Island, most notably Quonset. So having her and her vision, her connectivity to Rhode Island and New England is going to be an asset. We just got to get to that process. Uh, I also think what's most important is is a transition process so that she and her existing staff, hopefully are working hand in hand with Governor-elect McKee uh, and giving him all the tools and opportunities that he can hit the ground running because he'll be submitting very, very soon, um, less than a month, a budget to the General Assembly. And this will be one of the most difficult budget review processes in recent memory. Yeah, and that's the question. Will it be his budget? We'll get to that in just a second. Uh, Ed, you know, the other thing that occurred to me, she has been flat out, as a lot of us are. I mean, I, I haven't taken a vacation. Where are you going to go, right? And you would think she would use this time. It's not going to get any easier when she gets into the crucible of Washington, D.C., especially as a cabinet position. Why wouldn't you just want to take two weeks off, spend a little time with your family, maybe look for a place to stay in D.C.? Because it, it doesn't look like she's going to get any time off. So why not just step aside? Well, you know, I, I, uh, I see what you mean. It would be good to have a little respite before taking on a big responsibility like that. But at the same time, uh, she, she has some, some big duties, some big uh, issues in front of her with the, with the budget and, and with the pandemic. The, the questions about uh, the pandemic uh, continue. It, you know, there's uh, the questions about the vaccine rollout and who's getting it, are board members at the hospital getting it. You know, the, there's still a lot of questions to answer before uh, she makes that transition. Let's talk about that. Uh, the uh, Attorney General, Peter Nerona, uh, just on Wednesday, we're taping this Thursday morning, there was a journal article by Brian Amaral saying that um, everybody at Lifespan and Care New England had gotten it, even board members who are not in the, uh, uh, you know, on the front lines. Keith, let me go back to you on this. Um, I don't know if it's much ado about nothing or whether it's a larger issue. They had a great plan going back to last fall. And I remember sitting there thinking, wow, they're talking about vaccines already. Aren't vaccines going to be down the line? And Rhode Island seemed to be ahead of the of the ball game. But I'm sure you hear it down in Newport, too. People are like, look, I've got a 75-year-old grandmother. She can't get a vaccine. So I wonder what your view is on how this is rolling out and how things are going to change now that we have a new administration. Well, let, let's be honest. I mean, uh, I think one of the many things that President Biden's going to inherit is the non-existent COVID-19 comprehensive plan. Um, and now, as a part of his inauguration and his first day in office, he's announced a very ambitious, uh, giving out 100 million shots in 100 days. We'll have to see. Uh, but in any case, um, I, I've actually been impressed with the Rhode Island Department of Health. They've done an outstanding job with what resources they've had, either federal or state. And I think ultimately, the goal is going to be is, is what federal funds and then what federal resource will be made in place so we can accelerate vaccines. And again, the starting point is our most vulnerable populations, our first responders, is our healthcare officials. And we also have to recognize that particularly in a state such as Rhode Island, it's our urban areas. 
that have large percentages of high-risk populations and high density, uh, which certainly sometimes strains safety protocols. So, so my sense is, is that at the very least, we have a new president and administration that understands the urgency, that understands the science and the healthcare policy that'll be required to accelerate both vaccines and health and safety programs to the larger population. So at the very least, I think we're in a better position today than we were in the previous administration, much better. Donna, what about this rollout? Well, sure, and I, I think um, going back to what you started with and what Ed has pointed out, that the fact that like executives who are on board, who are on boards, who might be you know a healthy 42-year-old person, um, and to Keith's point, now if those people are sort of cutting the line and it's kind of like an inside thing and lifespan and saying, you know, oh, we can give you the vaccine because you're our like, you know, board member. And then you have elderly people who are maybe waiting till March from what I have followed. Um, I, I think this could be a slightly bigger issue than what it might seem. And I think, again, it points back to the fact, a couple of quick final things about how Ramondo has handled this. She's gotten great marks throughout the year. But I think what this shows is for some reason, I think it was a political strategy by her to leave McKee fully out of, I mean, do you guys ever remember him standing there at the briefings for 10 months? And by the way, that's very different from what you've seen in other states. I live in Massachusetts. Baker and Karen Polito have stood there side by side for now, you know, 10, 11 months. So I thought that her strategy, and if that was politically driven, and she didn't want to let him have a showcase moment, maybe protecting another Democrat for their future ambitions, which is what I think people speculate was why, um, that's a little bit blown up now, because now she has to hand off the whole mess and the process to McKee. So I think in that way, there are questions about why did she do that? He has to go forward. I realize that. Um, and again, I've given her high marks, but I think this vaccination thing with the board members, that's got to be just cut down and cut out right now. Um, and the fact that you have the AG, Nerona, like looking into it, it does raise a lot of questions. Ed? Yeah, I, you know, I've got to give the Ramondo administration credit for making equity a key part of the rollout of the vaccine. You know, they've they prioritized Central Falls, which has been one of the hardest hit uh, parts of not only Rhode Island, the hardest hit part of Rhode Island for sure, but the, one of the hardest hit uh, parts of the whole Northeast. So they, they've got the vaccine there. And uh, when we had the update last week, they had more than 2,000 uh, doses already uh, delivered. Um, but yeah, and, and yeah, on those updates uh, with the vaccine uh, task force, they talk about how uh, the, the vaccine doses come in big packages and you want to be efficient. So I think that's part of the rationale for why they were uh, delivering a bunch of vaccines to uh, everybody at the hospital, IT, whether they were an IT or uh, a frontline ER worker. But I, I just don't think that that sits well with when you have so many senior citizens who are waiting and, and, and uh, uh, you know, just uh, looking for that vaccine as soon as possible when you've got the CDC saying, let's uh, give it to everybody 65 or older. And to have the attorney general now looking at the law uh, is, is significant. So we'll see what comes of, comes of that. Um, but, you know, the, the, the larger question that the larger challenge the states had is they, they have way more demand than, than they have supply of the vaccine. And I, I do think the Biden administrations are going to help. And, and one encouraging thing I heard yesterday was that Amazon 
uh, is is saying that they would help with the delivery. And Amazon can can, <laughs> can get me my my. my if you put Amazon on it, it'll be there tomorrow, right? Yeah, they get my sweatpants here in 24 hours. So if if they can do uh, for. Uh, the vaccine, what they've done for sweatpants, will be in a much better shape. So the question is, Ed, do you have to have Prime? Do you have to have pr- you have to subscribe to Prime to be able to get your vaccine overnight? What do yeah, you you're asking all the right questions, Jim. Uh, Donna, I agree with you. The governor, I think, for the most part, has done a good job. And as she pointed out, she has been to 125 briefings. She's taken our questions, my questions, sometimes not the most difficult. But that dynamic of not having Dan McKee there, and he, I did an article with him the last summer. He said, look, I'm a backup quarterback. I don't have a team. I don't even have a uniform. And now he's the one going through. Keith, you've been on the inside of government. I wonder as you look, and you know the players, what are going to be Dan McKee's challenges coming in other than the obvious of getting up to speed? A McKee administration is going to look a little bit different than a Raimondo administration. Yeah, the, the challenge uh, that Dan McKee is going to have is, is is the budget, because is it the previous administration's budget and policy priorities, or is it his? And he's going to have a very short time frame uh, to decide on the difference between the two and what he'd like to do, and then have to deliver it and negotiate it with the Round General Assembly that has a new speaker and many, many new members, particularly in the House. So there's a very short time frame for Dan, and he has to also bring and put together his staff and his team. So there's a lot of discussions as far as cabinet members to keep, cabinet members to bring in, staff issues, policy issues, and it all wrapped around this 45-day, two-month window of the budget. So it's a challenge. So um, I would hope that as soon as possible, both parties can get together, Ramunda team and Dan McKee team can get together and work together on behalf of all the people in Rhode Island. And Ed, the two big questions in my mind, which we've covered for years, uh, the taxpayer-funded tuition, the Rhode Island promise at CCRI, because that's up at the end of the year, and the continued phase-out of the car tax. And with this huge budget hole, those would be two easy targets. I just don't get a sense how important that would be in a McKee budget as opposed to what... And look, let's be clear, the governor proposes the budget, whoever it is, the sausage gets all jumbled up, and by the time it gets spit out... In May or June, it's the General Assembly's budget. So we understand that. But the governor puts the priorities on. What do you think about those two programs, Ed, the the, uh, the promise and the car tax phase out? Yeah, with the size of the budget gap, I, I think the uh, car tax phase out is, is definitely the continuation. Taking the next step is in jeopardy because you've already heard House leaders saying, you know, it's a priority for them, but they're going to, but it, it may not be able to continue uh, uh, given the, the, where, how the numbers are adding up. And yeah, I, I think uh, the McKee administration is going to come in with different priorities. They, they're focused on the small businesses and getting them as much of the federal relief uh, funding as, as possible. He's been talking about that for, for months. And I agree, he has a huge, uh, you know, he's, uh, the administration says, uh, his team says he's been preparing for this for years, but uh, talk about coming in with a lot of challenges in front of you. You've got the pandemic, you've got uh, uh, almost unprecedented budget uh, deficit and, uh, you know, just an ec- the unemployment rate uh, so high. So he, he's got his hands full. Donna, I think Joe Biden realizes he's not going to get the whole 1.9 
trillion. A lot of that discussion, particularly in, in the previous administration, the Trump administration, are we going to send a lot of money to, in effect, bail out these these states? And there was a, you know, there was all, oh, you mismanaged your budgets. I think a lot of people know that red states and blue states has been decimated. But places like Massachusetts and Rhode Island are facing severe deficits. I wonder what your thought is now as they go through these stimulus negotiations, whether you see more money coming to the states to actually help them. Yeah, and um, I, I would also note um, that it's there's a logjam, however, to release what was just released that was, you know, a, another trillion. This has not always been that well reported. Um, the money is not all released by the states, and that's been notable. I mean, we're talking in the trillions. So um, I would just say I realize uh, Biden came in and I thought that they did a fantastic job. There's no question. That was a very important uh, day, historic moment for the country. And I know we can talk about that. But I, on this, the fact that I think he feels pressure, they have a checklist of what they're doing in the very first day, in the first 10 days and all that stuff. Um, I, I think you, you need to have a bit of a, an accounting of, well, st- trillions was already released. And there's a lot of evidence to be fair to these beleaguered governors who are, you know, continuing to manage this wild virus and, and you know, 150 regulations for different business sectors. So I think there needs to be help maybe to help the states, you know, properly distribute money that is kind of like piling up in, in funds and, you know, budgets, budget accounts. Uh, and Keith would know more about this than, than the money's not all been distributed is from what I am following. So before they just, in some ways, it's stuff this gets to be abstract, you know, here's a trillion, here's 1.9 trillion, but you know, it has to be distributed. And there's a lot of evidence in the country and in our New England states that there's small businesses who are saying, I don't know, we haven't seen much help here. But then there's evidence that larger entities, including a lot of law firms in Rhode Island, you know, we're the recipients of 10, 12, 15 million dollars under PPP loans, and that was publicly reported. Um, okay, it, it was that proper. I just think there's a lot of money that's been out there, and I think, and that's up, up to the media, you've got to do a really good job of where's the money, where is it going, where should it have gone? You know, I think that has to be answered. What about that, Keith? Well, again, uh, anytime you have this massive movement of cash by the federal government for social economic reasons, be it great society programs of the 60s or going back to the Roosevelt administration, uh, you're going to have issues. You're going to have fall throughs. You're going to have abuses and such. But I, but I think what's most important is, is to focus on and assess over the last year, because it's been a year now, what's worked. And, and, it, and if I would say that the priorities for federal money is, is to absolutely engage states and give states the capital and the opportunity to make the investments that they see fit within their states and communities. And I think the priority areas are clearly uh, health equity and health investments, public education, particularly how do we safely get our kids back to school and how do we protect our teachers and educators. Um, I absolutely believe that workforce training so that we can train people uh, and give people the opportunity to get off the unemployment rolls and back working is important, particularly those people in high risk areas and high-risk communities such as Essential Falls in, in Rhode Island. And then it's a small business community because most jobs are created and sustained by small businesses, not by large companies. And everything that we can do to get small businessmen and women back on their feet uh, is going to drive a fast recovery for the economy. So it's strategic investments. 
And I believe the states understand what the priorities are. And I'm actually very excited to see Dan McKee because Dan has been an advocate for small businesses going back to the time when he was mayor of Cumberland. So, and he's been, seems like every day he's out there talking to small business people and talking about workforce needs and small business needs and capital needs. So I think we just got to have the federal government provide the resources that state governors need and then state governors working with their legislatures have to put those cash out into the streets as quickly as possible. All right, let's do this. Let's go. We got a lot to talk about with the inauguration. Let's do um, outrages and kudos first uh, or outrages or kudos. Ed, what do you have this week? Um, well, one of uh, the outrages uh, that still bugs me is just seeing the Confederate flag in our United States Capitol, um, you know, and, and that's just that's uh, also reminding me of I grew up in Smithfield. And when I go to my father's house there, I, I see a Confederate flag flying just a half mile from my house. So, uh, that, you know, I just think that that symbol of, of racial hatred doesn't have a place anymore. Keith, what do you have? Outrage or kudos? Uh, it's an outrage, and, and I'm, I'm going to go with Ed. Uh, my outrage of the last few weeks is seeing far too many people storming our U.S. Capitol, waving an American flag alongside Confederate flags and wearing anti-Holocaust sweatshirts. Um, I, I just see these actions and these people as the historical equivalent of a T-Rex with one foot in the tar pit. Um, and fortunately, America is, is rapidly evolving, and I think these types of beliefs and actions are going to be soon to become extinct. Interesting. Donna, what do you have? Well, um, the outgoing farewell by um, now former President Trump um, not only fell short for lots of reasons of what occurred in the past two weeks and his role in that and Republicans and leading Republicans have denounced that. But, you know, in those final moments, I, it occurred to me um, as a Republican myself, you know, he's he left town really the way he came in. He was determined to be the outsider, the disruptor. Um, and if you just glance at what was done on that tarmac, you know, it was kind of all about him and his family. And I think he just gave like a five second, oh yeah, thanks Vice President Mike Pence, who then <laughs> the mob was, you know, <laughs> calling for like hang the guy. I mean, just like crazy, you know, and I think, and he barely mentioned Mark Meadows, who had the impossible job of being his chief of staff in a stormy, stormy final year. We all know, you know, the rest is history, but I just think that no matter how there are people so loyal, you as a if, you know, I don't know how you wouldn't feel uh, very unsettled by the way it was all still about him, his solo moment in the spotlight, and he did not go to the inauguration. I think he lost sight. That that lives through history that he chose to do that. It's just very very disappointing that that's just how he kind of like blew out of town, you know. Keith, let me go back to what you said about the the, um, the scene of the riots two weeks to the day before the inauguration. And they talked about people being up right where Joe Biden and everybody was standing, the riots and, and how things were transformed. And I wonder, you know, you've had a lot of we've all had a lot of chance to, to think about that. What your thought the riots leading into what we saw on Wednesday at the inauguration? Well, is is what I just said. It's. Um, I think it's a thought process that is, is rapidly de-evolving in this country for the good. Uh, if you look at the demographics later this year, the 2020 census will be presenting. And what you'll see nationally and you'll see within our state is a increasing diversity of population. Uh, and with increasing diversity of population, diversity of thought and diversity of values. And I think the people who are rioters uh, are representing a almost um, 
a pushback of not of political proportions, of not economic proportions, but the fact that their thought process and how they see America is quickly de-evolving. Uh, and the America of old, uh, like the T-Rex, is soon to be extinct. And, and I'm excited going forward with this administration, um, what this administration provided visually with the diversity of men and women of different races and ethnicities and colors and religion. That's the America that I choose to live in. And I believe that's the America that most Americans choose to live in. So hopefully uh, what we saw several weeks ago at our U.S. Capitol is something we're going to put in our rearview mirror. You know, the one thing I hope we can do is, is to be able to govern together because you see Joe Biden with the executive orders yesterday. Look, Barack Obama at the end of his term, we, we you know, a lot of people don't remember that. He was not getting along well with Congress. So a lot of it was executive order that got rolled back by Donald Trump. Now we see Trump's executive orders getting rolled back by Joe Biden. The things that last are the ones that are legislated, like the Affordable Care Act, like the tax cuts, even though it was the Republicans who put that through. And Ed, so I wonder going forward what you're thinking Look, it's a it's the narrowest of margins in the Senate. And already we begin to see Mitch McConnell begin to soften a little bit. I wonder what you think about it's going to be kind of rocky. Biden has look, inaugurations day is like the beginning of spring training. And then you hit the reality of governing. So I wonder what you think about that in the first hundred days. Yeah, and if I could just add to the outrage, we, we mentioned outrages, I'd give a kudo, uh, some kudos to Amanda Gorman with the, the inaugural poem. I just thought that was so powerful and, and really uh, uh, she just rose to the moment so well. Um, but yeah, yeah, the, the, uh, the, I think Biden is sincere in wanting to uh, unify uh, the country and, and reach across the aisle. You know, he, he's, he's talked about that. He's not just saying it on, on the on the uh, dais there, but uh, it, but it's going to be difficult. You know, as you say, the, it's it's narrowly split in the Senate. Um, but you know, I, I think one of the things that struck me that uh, Biden said the other day was yesterday was that we must reject the culture where facts themselves are manipulated. You know, if there's going to be unity, I think everybody's got to have the same. You can have different opinions, different political stances, but you, we've got to be dealing with the same set of facts, like a, a fact about who won the election. Um, so, you know, he, he said uh, you know, there's truth and there are lies, lies told for power and for profit. So, you know, you, you've you've uh, you had um, senators and uh, what, 147 members of Congress voting to challenge the election results, even when it, there was no, you know, courts had rejected these claims of widespread voter fraud. So I think everybody's got to get on the same page and, and tell the truth and, and, and then have the policy disagreements. Donna, you get the last minute. Sure. Um, I, I might add to all that, or maybe I take a little bit of, of difference um, from Keith. I, I, I think what you saw at the Capitol however, is, is deeper than this kind of simple narrative of, oh, you have, you know, some whites don't want to accept a multicultural America. I think that's not fully what's going on. And I find it actually, as Republicans, very disturbing. And the role social media has played, you guys know this, um, in just perpetuating wild conspiracies. And there are these really widening groups, I find it very disturbing, whether it's QAnon or this other stuff. And they, so it's, it's, it's deeper than, oh, gee, you know, some people feel like the country's changing. The country's been changing for 35, 40 years. I think it's more than that. And I find it actually very disturbing. And there's no question Trump tried to exploit that 
and then look what ended up happening. You know what I mean? Like, I think there's this will, it, it's, it's a chilling thing. The social media role in it is, is very there. It's disturbing. It goes, it will go beyond Trump's era. And I, I personally think that, you know, the party has to really address where that is. All right, folks, unfortunately, that is all the time we have for the main show. But you know what? We're going to continue to talk about this online, lively extra. So hang with us. Keith and Ed and Donna, thank you for this. We'll be back right after this. RIPBS.org slash lively. You can hear this discussion continue. For the rest of you, come back next week as a lively experiment continues. Have a great week. Experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS.